is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Planet in chaos, scorching heat waves, extreme flooding, death, is climate change, accelerating summer weather patterns, will go in-depth. More business ventures are buying up medical practices across the country. We're going to look into how that will impact cost of your health care. Two movies coming out later this month are so popular with people, they want to see them both on the same day, even though these movies could not be more different. We start with Earth's Climate and Chaos. Christy Dahl is Principal Climate Scientist at the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks for being with us, Christy. Thanks for having me. I can't remember uh, a time, at least in recent memory, where the headlines haven't been similar from virtually every place on Earth. Heat waves, flooding, excessive rain. What is going on? Yeah, I mean, it's been truly unprecedented the last few weeks around the planet. Um, We have seen extreme heat in many countries, Canada, Mexico, the U.S., India, China, Um, We've seen flooding in places like Vermont just the last couple of days, and we've seen extreme wildfires up in Canada. They've already broken their record for the most acres burned on record, Um, and it's only July, so we've got a few months of summer ahead of us. And there are a few things that are driving this. Um, you know, one is that we just shifted into an El Nino phase. Um, El Nino is a climate pattern. And when it's in the El Nino phase, we tend to see warmer temperatures around the planet. Um, we also know that um, uh, human-caused climate change is just driving us warmer and warmer year by year and making these kinds of extremes more likely. So uh, are things going to calm down and get back to normal, or are we stair-stepping our way to a climate apocalypse? Well, I think there's there's a middle ground there, right? Um, we can't really accept that this is a new normal because even though it's different from what we all grew up with, we're not done changing. And if we continue to emit greenhouse gases and heat-trapping gases like carbon dioxide and methane, we can expect these kinds of extreme events to just grow worse and worse over time. But, you know, we do have control over that. We can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions as individuals, as a nation, and as a planet. And that would really help to get some of these extreme events uh, in check. But of course, as you know, we're not making all that much progress. And some places on Earth are actually going backward in time, it seems. I'm kind of wondering if the uh, the folks that you're associated with, Union of Concerned Scientists, if it shouldn't now be called Union of Freaked Out Scientists. <laughs> Believe me, we're a lot more than concerned, and we talk about those sorts of edits all the time. Um, you know, it's it's pretty infuriating that we've known scientifically about the causes and consequences of climate change for decades. And for decades, we have been obstructed by fossil fuel companies who oppose any form of climate action. And we've been obstructed by policymakers who, quite frankly, are beholden to those fossil fuel companies and and their industry associations. And they have also not been delivering the kind of action that scientists have for decades been saying that we need. So... You know, while we know it's possible, it's really a matter at this point of what level of political will we can muster. 
And speaking of opposition, you know, people who are opposed to the idea that humans can cause climate change are going to hear you say, you know, we're going to stop uh, emitting carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere. And they're going to go, well, you know, methane, you got to stop the cows from, you know, uh, passing gas. And then carbon dioxide, that's what we breathe out. So they're going to accuse you of being yet another environmentalist who wants people to stop breathing. Uh, How do you answer that? (laughs) You know, that's just ridiculous. Um, It's a long debunked claim. And when it comes to things like stopping cows from burping, you know, quite honestly, we have to be looking to our agricultural system as well, because that's a huge source of not just heat trapping emissions, but also water use, which, you know, in many parts of the world, including out here in California, is a huge, huge issue. And so, You know, we don't like to talk about having to change our lifestyles so that we're um, preserving a better climate future for our children. But when push comes to shove, we're going to have to take a hard look at the ways that we're living, the ways that we're consuming um, in order to really tackle this problem. All right. uh, Christy Dahl with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Right now, though, a new study finds that private equity firms are gobbling up medical practices all across the country, even owning more than half of all specialists in certain markets. Richard Scheffler is the study lead author and distinguished professor of health economics and public policy at UC Berkeley. Thanks for being with us. Glad to be here. So when I was growing up in uh, New York City at the time, my doctor practiced out of his home uh, I believe his spouse was the nurse slash administrator of, if you want to call it an office, it was his office. And I'm guessing he wouldn't know a private equity firm if it kissed him. Why are private equity firms in the medical business to begin with now? Private equity firms are a firm where uh, uh, people uh, uh, give them money to invest uh, uh, often they're fairly well-off people, or sometimes they're uh, uh, investment uh, companies that uh, would like to make uh, as much money as possible. And uh, with these funds, um, they uh, go in and buy physician practices uh, because they're quite lucrative. You know... One of those things we don't like to think about too much because it will depress you if you think about it too much, uh, that your health care, your life and death is a matter of commerce and business when you go see a doctor. No matter how much you might think that doctor truly cares about you as a human being, it is, in fact, a business. And decisions are often made based on business and how much money something can make. Certainly with the insurance company stepping in between us and our doctors, they're making decisions based on we'll approve this treatment because we'll make profit off this. We won't approve this one because we don't make a lot of money on that. Doesn't this make that whole idea even worse if it's equity firms backing up doctors now. Yes, you're quite right. Uh, It has always been the case that in private practice, when you go to a private office, what a lot of us do, uh, that that doctor's office is set up uh, to make profit. It's a for-profit enterprise. That's always been the case. But we also know that the doctors have an oath uh, to... uh, to always put the patient first before profits. Uh, and we've trusted them and, uh, and their oath uh, to do the right thing. 
The problem when a, when a private equity firm has bought their practice, uh, they no longer have that complete autonomy. And the private equity firm uh, can uh, give them guidelines and, and uh, goals, uh, you know, uh, see these many more patients, uh, uh, deliver the, uh, these tests at a higher rate, uh, do these procedures, uh, on and on and on. Uh, and uh, the equation switches. Uh, so instead of it being patients first, it becomes profits first. I read the uh, report that you're co-author of, and the thing that I think is perhaps the most important from a patient's point of view is that, uh, if I'm reading the report correctly, in markets where private equity firms have bought up a, a lot of practices, uh, and there are certain specialties that I think uh, they're drawn to in particular, uh, prices have gone up, right? I mean, insurance companies uh, are shelling out more money. That means patients have more money out of pocket because it's commensurate with whatever their share is based on their insurance policy. Am I reading that correctly? Well, you definitely are. And uh, so the lead specialty is uh, gastronology, uh, you know, and um, uh, that's kind of the number one specialty practice uh, that they've bought. And um, uh, so when they buy it, uh, the, the convincing evidence in this study is that prices go up. And uh, that happens in eight of the 10 specialties we look at. They go up uh, anywhere from 8 to uh, 15%, depending on the market and the specialty. And of course, when those prices go up, uh, your share, as you point out, of with co-payments and deductibles also goes up. So uh, it costs you more money. And of course, it costs the insurance company more money. And eventually, they're going to get that money from you. <laughs> so the next time you uh, have to renew your insurance, which we do in the United States uh, generally on a yearly basis, uh, the insurance rate will go up because the insurance companies uh, have to pay a higher price uh, to the practice uh, because they're now controlled by private equity. Uh, Richard Scheffler, uh, lead author of a study that we're uh, talking about here with more private equity firms uh, buying up medical practices. He's at uh, UC Berkeley. So um, next week, two big movies mm-hmm. are opening up. Huge. Uh, huge. Barbie, which is about, well, Barbie. Right. And uh, Oppenheimer, which is about the guy who really was the in the forefront of developing the atomic bomb. Right. And now you would think, go ahead. Yeah, and, and not a doll. Uh, not a doll. No, no, no. no. Right. But you would think, I mean, you kind of would think, right, that two different audiences. Yeah. That the people are going to go very and see different. Barbie, very different. Yeah. Not so. Wow. Yeah, and we will tell you why. And that's amazing. Uh, and these two movies, uh, by the way, might be opening up with actors out on strike. Uh, deadline to reach a deal with studios and producers is when the clock strikes midnight Thursday. With this is entertainment lawyer Joshua Grobart. Uh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So how Good big of a deal this is going to be? Now, when, now we have mentioned the fact that uh, if the actors do go out on strike, uh, it will be the first time that actors and writers have been out together since 1960. Uh, does that put a lot of pressure on uh, the studios, or do the studios just really don't care that much this time? 
Well, I think they do care. I, I, I don't think it's it has no effect. In fact, I think it has a fairly strong effect. Um, but the world is different than it was in 1960. And many productions are cross-border, involve many parties. It's possible. And I should also add that there's a storehouse of existing programming that, while it's been streaming, hasn't been on broadcast uh, television to date. So there is some a greater treasury to pull from to fill airtime rather than just doing reruns as was would have been the case, for example, in 19, 1960. Um, and there is the possibility of in some ways going around this by using foreign creatives instead of American creatives, at least perhaps on a temporary basis. Why has it been, at least on the surface, relatively easy, relatively, for one of the three major unions involved in motion pictures, the Directors Guild, to settle but not so the Writers Guild and perhaps, uh, depending on whether there is or isn't a strike, sag after that represents performers. Their demands are, you know, to the extent we know them, of course, these, these negotiations are confidential, but um, somewhat different. The Writers Guild and uh, sag AFTRA are very, very concerned about uh, artificial intelligence and uh, generative AI that would be used potentially to replace them to a greater or lesser extent. In other words, you can say, gee, I've seen every episode of, to pick one at random law and order, which there are hundreds of episodes, you could feed that into a, into an AI machine and have it generate scripts potentially. And now you had, you know, it'll probably need to be punched up by a human writer, but maybe only one or two instead of the actors, I'm sorry, excuse me, the writer's room of say eight. Um, so there's a lot of concern about that. And the same, of course, with actors who, not least for voice work, but also for physical work, these things can now be simulated. Uh, and there's a deep concern that very quickly they may find themselves uh, sidelined. All of them, including the directors, had concerns about pay and benefits. But what the directors don't seem to have the most immediate threat of being replaced uh, partly or wholly by AI. And so I suspect that they were not pushing as hard on those issues because it's it's presumably, at least for the time being, harder to replace directors with a machine than it might be to replace uh, supernumerary writers or some number of performers. All right. There's three possibilities here uh, by the time we hit the deadline. Uh, the union and the uh, producers announced are going to extend again like they did uh, a couple weeks ago. Or the actors go out on strike or... Uh, they announced they've made a last-minute deal, and a new deal is in place. Uh, let's assume that uh, we're not going to see another extension. Uh, and if the actors go on strike, will that provide more pressure to producers with actors and writers being out together to come to the table? Or, conversely, if the actors make a deal, do the writers feel like they've been left twisting in the wind? Well, certainly the, you know, sag after presumably believes that that the, the strike would be leverage and that uh, if they go on and strike, it will have a, a, an effect beyond that being felt by the Writers Guild uh, strike. Uh, it, it is the case that the writers are no longer working, but there's a lot of existing uh, scripts and whatnot out there that you know you can you can still film them and people are still filming. Um, if you, if the, the actors go out as well, then it's a lot harder to film, although as we've discussed previously, outside the country, you might be able to continue it in some form, but it'll be a lot harder. Um, 
it is a concern, I'm sure, at the Writers Guild that if they do, in fact, I'm sorry, if the if SAG-AFTRA and the, and the producers do come to a deal, that it does leave WGA there alone. Uh, but I think they're the ones with the strongest immediate concerns about AI, and I, I don't think they're moving anytime soon. Um, and at least on paper, uh, almost all the unions, SAG-AFTRA, Yahtzee, uh, have all voiced their, their support for the WGA. How much effect that support has if they're not also out on strike is a little unclear. Um, I, I'm sure if I were at the WGA, I'd be hoping for an active strike. You're pretty savvy about all these things. What's your guess on strike or not with SAG after? Uh, <laughs> my suspicion is that that uh, you guys may know a great deal more about it than I am. I'm not inside SAG after, um, but uh, so I'm not. I don't want to speculate. I I think there are reasons why they might want to make a deal, but their their incentives are very strongly aligned with the WGA on this. And if it's the, the AI concern, which is, I think, the biggest concern, uh, or perhaps the most intransigent concern, uh, is, as I think, almost as strong for the actors as it is for the writers. So they have a good, strong motivation. Whether, whether the producers will cave on this, I can't tell you. All right. Uh, entertainment lawyer uh, Joshua Grobart, uh, thanks for joining us today. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. Along with Rob Archer, I'm Charles Feldman. Bank of America being told to pay more than $100 million to customers for doing things like withholding reward bonuses, double dipping on fees, and opening accounts without customer consent. Bank of America is just another bank that's gotten into trouble lately with the feds. Dante Tosetti is a Bay Area-based banking expert in regulatory compliance and risk management. Dante, thanks for being with us. Hey, Charles. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So let's see. First, it was uh, Wells Fargo, uh, which got into lots and lots of trouble, as you know, over the past few years. Now Bank of America. Was my grandmother right? Should the money go into the mattress? Oh, no, no. Um, and it's just more than Wells Fargo and uh, Bank of America. Union Bank just also got fined uh, last week. Uh, so these fines are prevalent. I'm beginning to scratch my head on these. Um, you know, if a bank customer feels that they have been wronged, that customer would quickly and easily realize that they have multiple ways to submit a complaint. And and the people answering these hotlines for these complaints are, are professionals with a vested interest in, in these complaints. I'm talking about the FDIC, the Fed, the state, the CFP, CFPB. They all have hotlines and they're easily they can be easily found. So if these customers are not getting uh, what they want from their bank uh, through complaining directly to the bank, there's many avenues to complain. But, you know, uh, so the, the yeah. problem with that, though, is that these banks are so big that, say, somebody like me, I'm just small fry. I got a problem. Uh, I call and make a complaint. And let's just say it does go up the chain. The bank gets fined. But these banks are so huge. They're conglomerated. They got so much money. Fines don't mean anything to them, really. Yeah, the, 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 you're right. The, the, these big banks are big, but the Fed's bigger. And, uh, and the Fed has dedicated significant resources, as well as the other institutions, the FDIC, CFPB, even the state. They have significant resources with professionals behind these hotlines. I'm not, I'm just, I'm not talking about these hotlines that just provide empathy. These, these are serious professionals that are taking notes and are escalating your complaints. Okay. So and, I'm be yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I'm beginning to wonder if, if there's so many resources dedicated to protecting the consumer in banking, then how are these issues growing to hundreds of millions of dollars? That's well, where I'm scratching my head. Uh, well, I, I guess the other thing that makes me scratch my head is that, and, and I agree with you that, that people 
you should take a certain degree of personal responsibility. But mm-hmm. on the other yeah. on the other hand, uh, what these banks, uh, Bank of America, for example, uh, you know, creating credit card accounts when nobody applied for them, they shouldn't do that to begin with. And they're doing that apparently, according to the complaints, just because they wanted to meet quotas for opening up new accounts. So mm-hmm. uh, isn't that the bigger question, not whether or not people should complain more loudly or, or know better how to complain, but why are the banks doing that to start? Uh, you have a good point there. And and with, with these incentives, when you when you have incentives like this, you're going to have some 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 uh, some activities such as this where accounts are opened for the for the banker who's trying to hit quota. And, and you are right. There's there's a balance between consumer protection and consumer responsibility. The question is how can how can this be resolved? Uh, you know these these fines are big, but yeah, you're right. It's a drop in the bucket for these banks. Uh, you know, so how can it be solved? I think I think it should be solved, and it could be solved through through the resources dedicated through these complaint hotlines. If more and more people are aware of these hotlines, and more and more people submit their complaints to these hotlines, I think that's the solution, and and that'll help identify these issues earlier, as opposed to later, and these issues. Uh, hopefully become smaller and can't be quantified at hundreds of millions of dollars. So when somebody wants to uh, move their bank account or open up another one, or it's a, it's a middle-class person, doesn't have a, not a lot of money, but should they think about looking at smaller community banks as opposed to the big uh, national conglomerates? Absolutely. That is the benefit of, of the United States banking system. We have over 4,000 financial institutions to choose from. Not many other countries have that many options. So, so every consumer has the option to go to banks or credit unions, um, and you, you should have uh, some opportunities to to or, or some selections to uh, to find the right fit for yourself. Yeah, but it almost seems like a sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't proposition, because as you know, some regional banks have not been faring all that well lately. So your choice is what? To go to a smaller bank that may fold with your money or go to a larger bank and have them rip you off? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, 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 that's a great choice. <laughs> I feel bad now. I, I feel awful. It's, no, but is that the choice? Uh, that, that, the question regarding the, the, the regionals and the consolidations, that's that's another issue we talked about last time. And uh, yeah, don't, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of issues with, bank, with, with banks these days, and I'm here to try to help solve them. Uh, but it comes down to anything. You know, you have issues with your bank. You'll have issues with your plumber. You'll have issues with your landlord. There's there's issues everywhere. And again, no no other industry that I know of has so much resources dedicated to trying to protect you as a as a as a banking consumer than any other industry. So I think I think we have you know from a consumer standpoint, you have a pretty good thing coming. Or you know, it's pretty good for you as a as a banking consumer. Overall, All right. relatively speaking. All right, Dante uh, Tucetti, Bay Area-based banking expert in regulatory compliance and also risk management. So you go to a restaurant, yeah, right, and you wouldn't, unless you're weird. Now I'm looking at Rob. So then, <laughs> thank you. But unless you, I mean, you wouldn't order like a steak right. with peanut butter and jelly sandwich on the side, right? Because a steak is serious food, right? And peanut butter and jelly is kind of like a fun thing. Fun to, thing yeah. It's a fun thing to eat. Yeah, so you wouldn't order the two. Right. Well, on the 21st of July, this was a stretch, <laughs> this analogy. <Yeah. laughs> it was, it's almost about to break. It's been stretched so it hard. It was a stretch. But you have two movies coming out. Oppenheimer, very serious film about the creation of the atomic bomb. Mm-hmm. Barbie, about, well, Barbie. Right. <laughs> well, it turns out that there's an incredible anticipation 
for both of them. So much anticipation that there are people, believe it or not, and not a few, but a lot, who have bought tickets to see both movies on the same day. Really? On the, the same, same day. day. Both yeah. of these. Talking about a whiplash, you're going to get emotionally. Uh, Darren Campo is a professor of uh, entertainment, media, and technology at New York University, also a longtime TV producer. Uh, Darren, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So if someone goes to see both of these movies in the same day, that is going to damage them emotionally, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know which one uh, might be more emotionally damaging, but... You know, I mean, you together. At, when you look at... Um, well, when you look at Barbie and Oppenheimer, um, we have to remember that the entertainment serves two big functions for us. One is that, especially going to the movies, it's a social experience, so... You know, this is something that you want to share with other people. But there's another thing going on, and I think it's going on in both of them, which is that big entertainment balances and reflects things that are going on in society. And so, well, Oppenheimer is from earlier in the century, and Barbie is also from earlier in the century, uh, last century. But they both are very relevant, and they reflect things that we've been hearing about every day in the news. Yeah, but uh, together, I mean, Oppenheimer, I think it's like three hours as a film. And I don't know how long Barbie uh, plays out for. I'm, I'm guessing about two, maybe. But that's a lot of time to spend nowadays for, let's face it, you know, most people have a fairly short attention span. I mean, we're talking about a lot of people who, you know, 20 seconds on TikTok is an eternity. How do you sit through five hours of film? Well, I think I got up twice to go to the bathroom during the uh, last Indiana Jones movie, so that's <laughs> okay. just a given these days. Um, but yeah, the, the it's just a strange combination, as you said. But the clarity of the two films, uh, the clarity of the promise that you get from Oppenheimer, you know, the way Christopher Nolan packages a, a film like that, and 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 Barbie, of course, which is an iconic brand. I mean, it makes it really easy to go see them both because you kind of know what you're getting. Which one would you see first? Do you want to? Do you want to? Because I I hear Oppenheimer can be kind of a downer, uh, and Barbie obviously not. Which one do you do first? Uh, I personally would go Oppenheimer and then Barbie. Okay, like uh, Barbie is the palate cleanser. Well, you know, it might not be as much of a palate cleanser. Um, they both deal with some pretty um, intense um, social issues. You know, Oppenheimer. When they were developing that bomb, they didn't know if it was our last invention. And every day we're talking about AI and wondering if that's our last invention. Um, and Barbie is, you know, the product of um, materialism and the promise of happiness through materialism. And I think the movie shows us that that might not be the case. You don't know if Barbie's going to hang out with Ken forever. You don't, you know, really don't know that. And you grew up thinking uh, that was happily ever after looked, you know, bubblegum pink. <laughs> Why do I have a suspicion that we are all being manipulated by some brilliant marketing. Oh, because we are. Ah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, you're too savvy to know that we're not being uh, marketed brilliantly. You know, Adam Aaron, who's the CEO of AMC, saw, you know, Barbenheimer was on Wikipedia <laughs> for over a month. Yeah. Um, he knows how to get people into the movie theaters. So, uh, uh, yeah, we here we are talking about it. All right. So here's a very, very important question. And I'm going to bet that this is a question you have not been asked about these two movies. Why does Barbie have a catchy song? And Oppenheimer does not. <laughs> a catchy song about the bomb? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Oppenheimer, come on. You gotta make a catchy song out of that, right? I'm sure Lady Gaga's working on it. 
<laughs> something, something of a boom. Which movie do you uh, suspect will do better business? I, I, you know, as much as I love Christopher Nolan, and and I'm sure I'm going to love Oppenheimer. I've loved all of his movies. Uh, I I suspect that Barbie might do better business because people generally want, uh, if it's well done, they want to be entertained in a lighter fashion. I mean, I think so. Um, Barbie might be a little more broadly appealing. I look back at the last sort of historical um, Christopher Nolan film, which was Dun- Dunkirk. Um, and there was, a, you know, a lot of Marvel movies. I think that, um, I think Barbie will uh, do, do a little bit better, but um, I bet Oppenheimer does really well. And I also bet that when they do the research, they'll find that opening on the same weekend, Barbie actually helped Oppenheimer do a better box office. You know, there's so much talk about streaming now versus theatrical release. Are these examples, Oppenheimer and Barbie, perhaps of movies that do need to be shown in the theater as opposed to watching it from your home? Absolutely. I think, you know, Christopher Nolan has been very clear about what he's making and how, you know, the visual impact has to be appreciated um, at a movie theater. Um, and then for Barbie, um, it's a so, you know, it's it's a it should be a fun outing with your friends and, and family. And um, so both of those functions um, are things that you get a much higher level of when you go out to a movie theater. Uh, very quickly, which movie do you think is going to be louder? And I think I already know the answer. Louder? Yeah. I think Barbie's the louder. Oh, you think Barbie's going to be louder? Because Christopher Nolan is known for uh, taxing your eardrums. Uh, yeah, you know, if, it depends on how, how high the volume goes on for that atomic explosion. <laughs> there you go. It's going to be big. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Darren Campo, Professor of Entertainment, Media, and Technology at New York University. Which movie are you going to see first, Charles, or either of them? Um, I think probably Oppenheimer. Yeah. But you know what I wonder? I wonder if, if like, Tom Cruise is upset that he somehow didn't get into this. <laughs> not, not in this conversation. No, but I mean, because it could have been, like, a triple, like, a trifecta. Right. It, right. it could have been Mission Impossible, Oppenheimer, uh, Oppenheimer, and Barbie. Can you imagine all three of those opening on the same weekend? Uh, yes, I could, actually. That's, that would be amazing. Uh, uh, you, you know what? Next time, theaters, think about that. Yeah, uh, all three. This has been KDX. Think of De- the T-shirts. And get T-shirts. Think huge. of the coffee mugs. Yes. Uh, this has been KDX and Def. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.